Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music on pet sounds brian wilson of the beach boys traded in songs about surfing and cars for introspection and chamber musicians the result was one of pop music's greatest masterpieces i'm greg cott and i'm jim DeRogatis. we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the release of pet sounds with a classic album dissection That's coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and we're going to be talking about Pet Sounds, that great Beach Boys album from 1966. It's in the air again, Jim. People are talking about it. Uh, Brian Wilson is going to be taking it on tour this summer, playing various festivals. It should be uh, a moving experience, to say the least. That's coming up, but first we got some music news. If there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alone there. It's just a sprinkling for the May Queen. Yes, there. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that, of course, is the immortal Stairway to Heaven, Led Zeppelin's hit from 1971. Greg, walk into any guitar store anywhere in the world, and some kid is sitting in the corner trying to master that lick. He or she probably thinks it was written by Jimmy Page. But Randy Wolf, the guitarist otherwise known as Randy California, long accused Led Zeppelin of plagiarism for that song. Now his estate, he died in 1997, is suing Zeppelin and uh, claiming that Spirit wrote the song Taurus and Jimmy Page and his bandmates took that and rewrote it as Stairway to Heaven. Greg, why don't we do a quick A-B side-by-side of those two tunes? the top of those two tunes is pretty darn similar. you got to remember, though, Stairway to Heaven goes on for eight minutes, Greg, and you have Bonzo thundering in, and you have Plant yelping and stuff. There are a few notes in there, Jim, that are very similar. There's no doubt about that. But uh, really, it's not our call on this one. It's a U.S. district judge who is saying, hey, there's enough evidence here to move forward. A trial is scheduled later on in the spring. That is not the usual course of business in our courts of law regarding these types of cases. Most of them get thrown out immediately. And usually, if they do move further along, there is a settlement behind closed doors. But right now, we're on course for a trial. We're going to turn to intellectual property attorney Jeffrey Brown, who has been following this case closely. He's from the firm of Michael Best and Friedrich. Now, he joined us last year to talk about a similar case involving the copyright of Happy Birthday. Jeff, welcome back to Sound Opinions. Hey, thanks for having me. How does a judge, presumably without a, a music degree, make a determination 
that these songs are similar enough to warrant a jury trial for copyright infringement. That seems to be like a pretty bold step in itself. Yeah, there, there's two things that the, the trustee has to prove here, and so it's Randy California's trust. They're trying to basically prove up first that they actually own a copyright here, and second, that Led Zeppelin copied protected elements of the musical composition. And Led Zeppelin's going to fight them on both fronts. But the judges said at this juncture, there's enough to get in front of a jury. And the jury's going to have an opportunity to assess whether Led Zeppelin had access to Taurus and ultimately whether there's a substantial similarity between the musical composition that Randy California created and Stairway to Heaven. So a judge is just using basically his own ears to say, hey, they, they sound kind of similar. Let's go to trial. It seems like a pretty amazing, you know, step. Yeah, it's, it's more than his own ears. So in essence, there is a, a question of fact. And both sides have had experts. Both sides have submitted expert testimony. The spirit folks have been able to show that there's circumstantial evidence of access. Led Zeppelin is fighting them, obviously, at, at each step of this. But you know, there, there's enough to get to a jury. And the court has ultimately said, you know, let's let the people listen to this with their ears, and make the decision. You point out the key words you said earlier, the estate of Randy California. He's gone. That's right. Ten years, and then 20 years, and then 30 years, and then 40 years go by. We're only talking about one of the most famous songs in the history of rock and roll, Stairway to Heaven. Why now? Why does this happen now? That's a really good question. I think part of it relates to a case that came down, the Supreme Court decided a few years ago, that says that this type of delay, what we would call latches under the law, doesn't prevent somebody from bringing in a suit. Now, they can't look back all the way to 1971 when Stairway to Heaven came out, but they can look back three years prior to the filing of their action. So that would go back to 2011, and they'd be able to get damages, potentially, if, if they prevail here, from 2011 going forward. So that's what they would have an opportunity to get if they're successful. And that's a big if here. Well, and, you know, Led Zeppelin has admitted in the past to pilfering wholesale riffs and songs and winding up giving blues greats songwriting credit. So they kind of had a a reputation for this. But those prior settlements that they've entered into, the ones with Jake Holmes and Willie Dixon and Howlin' Wolf and and with others, they're not going to be considered. And the other thing that's going to be real hard for the plaintiffs here is that the jury is not going to get to hear Taurus as it's embodied on that spirit record, and they're not going to be able to hear any live concert performances of Taurus. They're going to be determining whether there's a substantial similarity based on the musical composition that was filed with the Copyright Office. So it's that sheet music. It's not the elements of the sound recording that are going to be considered. That makes it a lot harder in terms of establishing substantial similarity. There's a little weird footnote to this whole spirit versus Zep thing. There's apparently a uh, Baroque composition from the mid-1600s by an Italian composer, which sounds more like Stairway to Heaven than the Spirit song. There's potentially a, an, an argument to be made, certainly by the, the Zeppelin folks, that, hey, you know, there, there's other sources here. In fact, you've got uh, Jimmy Page providing testimony saying that the origins of Stairway to Heaven may have come not only from Bach or the Beatles, but perhaps from Mary Poppins. He cites Chim Chimarie. Jeff, take a, a big picture step back. 
is the law out of step with the way music is actually made? You know, there's that famous Lester Bangs formula, right? The three chords of La Bamba led to the same three chords in Louie Louie, led to the same three chords of Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones and No Fun by the Stooges. And we could say today the same three chords in Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, right? We recycle in rock and roll, in hip-hop, in popular music. I mean, there, there's starting to be an increasing recognition that people can use prior works and create new, original, transformative works. And that's come about perhaps most recently because of sampling. But if you remember where we were in the early 90s, you had a judge that was willing to refer Biz Markey for criminal prosecution because he used a sample in a case. And I think now there's a a better recognition of interpolation and and that people can be inspired without violating the rights of others. You know, and and I think there's still repercussions from that Blurred Lines case, which was the Marvin Gaye estate suing Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams for appropriating uh, the feel and rhythm of the song, which sounds a little bit different from the way this case is sort of playing out. Blurred Lines is a real serious warning for defendants, well, actually for both parties. It's, it's really a reminder that when this goes to a jury, anything can happen. Give us a sense of what you think the impact of this ruling might be, whether it comes down in favor or against Led Zeppelin. Well, I think that it's likely going to come down to money. And you know, if I had to guess, I think there's a, a strong chance that this settles before it goes to a decision. We've got the plaintiff out there now who's floating a proposal that he'd like to settle this for a dollar in songwriting credit. But obviously, it's not just a dollar because songwriting credit means payment for mechanicals, sync rights, public performance, royalties. People are figuring that this is a a song that in the remaining term of its copyright is probably worth over half a billion dollars. And you start doing some math from that, and half a billion times some fraction gets you into real money really quickly. I think that if the jury finds in favor of spirit, that you're going to have more of these cases. The people are going to see this as an opportunity to try to get in front of a jury. If they can get over that hurdle of summary judgment, if the judge lets them get to a jury, they're going to to try to get what they can. And the, the specter of that hanging over the heads of artists is likely going to prompt more settlements. Well, thank you, Jeff, for giving us some perspective on this. We're going to be watching how this case plays out in court. Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks very much. We come on this loop, John B. My grandfather and me. Around Nassau town, we did run. Drinking all night. Got into a fight. Well, I feel so broken. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's Sloop John B. from the Beach Boys album Pet Sounds. Now, Pet Sounds was released 50 years ago this month in May of 1966, and uh, Jim, if we agree on one thing, it's this album. It's an absolute masterpiece, one of the all-time great albums of the rock era, and certainly worthy of a classic album dissection. Absolutely, Greg. The rather modest album in terms of length, 13 tracks, 36 minutes, the 11th studio album released by the Beach Boys, but this was a real momentous event for the Beach Boys. It really marks a before and after period in Mm -hmm. the career of this group, this vocal harmony group out of California. When we think about the Beach Boys, I think the first name that comes to a lot of people's minds is Brian Wilson. He is uh, the mastermind 
of that group in many ways. He was a kid that grew up in uh, Hawthorne, California with his uh, brothers Dennis and Carl, uh, a little bit younger than him. And on his 16th birthday in uh, 1958, he received a uh, tape recorder. Mm. And a producer, a studio genius, was born that day. This kid already had a lot of musical inclination. His, uh, his father, Murray, uh, played a little bit of piano and was very uh, interested in music, vocal harmonies, etc., but saw in his son sort of a prodigy-like quality in being able to recognize great music, disassemble it, listen to it, listen to the components. He would take apart songs on the piano and start playing the different parts basically creating his own little symphonies there in his bedroom or his living room, as the case may be. Throughout his life, clearly, he was able to hear things no one else heard. Yeah, an amazing ear, an amazing inclination to take sound and translate it into his own language or to imagine a sound and figure out a way to perform it, to play it, to sing it. So quickly he was, you know, turning his his brothers into his own little vocal group. Mm-hmm. He loved the four freshmen, the, the vocal harmonies of the four freshmen. I remember to a distant and stars that fell like rain out of the blue. He loved Chuck Berry, he loved rock and roll radio bringing a lot of these influences into what he wanted to do. Of course, he's in high school. He wants to get into a band. He starts creating a band with his brothers, brings in his cousin, a guy by the name of Mike Love, who would later become one of his closest collaborators as a lyricist, and a high school friend named Al Jardine, who was a pretty darn good guitar player. So they had a pretty cool little group. And at that point, what were they writing about? Even people who know nothing about the Beach Boys know that they had songs about cars, girls, surfing, fun, and sun. That whole concept behind the group, I think it was Dennis, really, that sort of put the idea in Brian's head. The only surf. Here's what we should sing about. Yeah. Here's our topic. We're living on the coast of California. This surf thing's going to be really big, Brian. We should be writing some songs about this. The girls are going to love it. And, of course, being high school young men, they wanted to appeal to this audience. And that's what they wrote songs about night and day. These were the topics of conversation. They became the major American rock and roll group of the early 60s. I don't think there really was a close second to them during that era. Eight top 10 albums from 1963 through 65, Jim. It was incredible. Ten top 10 songs. I mean, this was a group that was going toe-to-toe with the Beatles. They were the only American group that was really kind of withstanding that British invasion and cranking out as many hits as the Beatles were. No, absolutely. They were a phenomenal success, but there were a lot of dark undercurrents below that sunny facade, Greg. I mean, first of all, let's talk about Murray Wilson. The Wilson brothers' dad is a problematic figure. He helped make them stars, but he had very particular ideas. He wanted to control them. You think you got it made? No, we don't. Son? We would like to record under an atmosphere of calmness. I love you. My mother loves you. We like to relax in First of all, you should never have all these people here. Second of all, who's Second of all, They're not saying anything. You're you the one talking. to sing from your hearts. Carl, Dennis uh-huh. is flatting. Mike was flatting on his high nose. Al was tight. Okay. I try to give you tips, and you think because you've had a few hits, you got it made. They split with him in 1964. Almost just brutal, the upbringing they had. When he wanted to punish the boys, he would make them kneel on rice. And he had one glass eye. If he was angry with them, he would pop it out and make them stare into the socket. This sort of thing will leave scars on young men, okay? Brian, 
also is in a sort of precarious state. The superstardom does not agree with him. The other boys are having the time of their lives, all right? <laughs> this is as wild as Beatlemania. I mean, talk about girls and cars and fun, right? Brian has a breakdown in uh, December 64. He's 22. He's newly married. And they're on a flight going from Los Angeles to Houston. He winds up screaming hysterically out of paranoia that his new wife is falling for his cousin, Mike Love. At the same time, Brian has this unrequited crush on his wife's sister. And perhaps most troublingly, the fallout from breaking with his father, the the pressures of stardom, this marriage, where does he fit in life? He has a friend named Lauren Schwartz, who's sort of one of those classic West Coast beatnik characters. In mid-1965, they drop Acid for the first time together. Mm -hmm. And Acid was a presence on the surf scene in the early 60s. You know, the guy who eventually becomes the second longest member after Jardine, who wasn't part of the family, Bruce Johnston. He had debuted with a a single. Uh, The backside was a classic surf instrumental called LSD25. stuff was in the air. Cary Grant's taking it, surfers are taking it, Brian takes it. He said he only took LSD a handful of times, but everything changed. Quote, my trips took me to the gates of consciousness and then on to the other side. On acid, I saw myself stretched out from conception to death, the beginning to the end. Acid was everything I could ever be and anything I wouldn't be, and I had to come to grips with that, I had opened the Pandora's box in my mind. Hmm. You and I have made this point many times. It is easy to romanticize someone who is in a state of drug addiction or a mental difficulty, and Brian certainly had his problems. He was brilliant and created despite those problems, not because of it. I don't want to romanticize. He made great art despite being a mess. The one thing that this whole period of breakdown allowed was for him to remove himself from the Beach Boys as a touring entity. Here was a group that was on the road constantly. They were so popular. They were touring the world. But Brian didn't feel comfortable being on the road. I mean, obviously, you get in a plane and you have a breakdown like that, that's going to scar you for life. He basically removed himself from the Beach Boys as a touring entity and became the guy who was going to work on the music in the studio while the boys were away making the bread on the road. You guys go and forward the brand. I will make the art at home. We'll take a look at the art Brian Wilson was able to create as we continue our classic album dissection of Pet Sounds. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I gave you love with a brand new star That's what you needed the most To set your broken heart free I know you cried and you felt But when I could, I gave strength to you I'm waiting for the day when you can love me I kissed your lips when your face looked sad It made me think about him And that you still loved him so Love begins. 
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. It starts with just a little glance now. Right away you're thinking about romance now. You know you ought to take it slower. But you just can't wait to get to know her. A brand new love affair is such a beautiful thing. But if you're Your days go wrong, it makes your night so long. You've got to keep in mind, love is here. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRogatis, and that's a little bit of the Beach Boys with Here Today from their album Pet Sounds. This month, Pet Sounds is celebrating its 50th anniversary, so today we're giving it the classic album dissection treatment. Now, by 1965, Beach Boys leader Brian Wilson had basically quit touring. He instead wanted to focus on recording, and he did a couple of really brave things to gain creative control in the studio. I mean, back in those days, artists didn't have a great deal of control over production, songwriting, arranging, who's going to play on the record. Those were all jobs taken over by a talent scout, a producer. The record company would take care of it. Boys, you just show up in the studio, and we got it all figured out for you. Well, that's why they split with Murray. Right. Their dad wanted to run the show. So, right, Brian kicks his own father out of the studio, says, you're not going to be here anymore. He kicks out his own record label from the studio. The the studio assigned a producer for their first couple albums. Brian says, no, I don't want to work with you anymore. Mm. He left the Capitol Record Studio, you know, that famous uh, building in Hollywood the that stack has its of own vinyl, studio, yeah. right? He said, I ain't going to work here anymore either because I don't want you guys looking in on what mm-hmm. I'm doing, and basically moved his whole operation to these other studios to emulate his hero, Phil Spector. He said, I'm going to work with the same guys Phil Spector mm-hmm. does. Spector, to his credit, could be quite a cranky dude, invited Brian in to his sessions to see how he worked. Brian picked up a lot of tips watching Spectre, talking to Spectre, and then hiring a lot of the musicians, the so-called Wrecking Crew. We had Hal Blaine, the great drummer from the Wrecking Crew, on the show recently talking about this era. We're playing all the big hits of the era. Wilson said, here's a bunch of guys who understand my language. They don't dress in suits. They're dressed like me. They look like me. They're sophisticated musically like me. And one notable woman. Carol Kay on bass. That's right. Exactly. Brian's great move at this period of time was to sort of take everything under his wing. The songwriting, the arranging, the production, the studio environment was all under Brian Wilson's direction. So he's got control in the business sense, Greg, but he also is taking control musically. Now, he's going somewhere more ambitious, slowly but surely, even before Pet Sounds, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can hear it in songs like The Lonely Sea and In My Room and Warmth Mm. of the Sun, When I Grow Up to Be a Man. These are songs that are kind of beyond fun, fun, fun and surfing USA. The subject matter is more sophisticated. The arrangements are more sophisticated. He's starting to create a sound that is very, very different from where they began. Will I dig the same things that turned me on as a kid? Will I 
Brian Wilson goes into the studio in July 1965, and he spends the next 10 months recording this new set of more sophisticated songs. I think the whole key, Greg, at the beginning of that songwriting process for Pet Sounds is what he begins to call these little musical sketches he lays down. Yeah, he called them feels. You know, he'd sit at that piano and uh, look over the hills of Beverly Hills where he was living and, and start creating these textures and tones, not really sure where it was going, but just sort of meandering on the piano and creating these beautiful feels, as he said, and then translating that into these lush orchestrations that he would use with this band, you know, the Wrecking Crew, Hal Blaine on drums, Glenn Campbell guitar, Carol Kay on bass, as you mentioned, you know, woodwinds and brass and string sections. Here's a great example of that. Don't talk, put your head on my shoulder. He was talking about nonverbal communication. You know, how do I communicate these feels with the orchestration? And then you have that beautiful creeping bassline underneath by Carol Kay, mm. just creating this very romantic kind of mood in this very innocent sounding song. feels so beautiful and so light. There's a, like a, a feeling of being suspended in the air when you listen to a song like Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder. And the album really kind of takes you from that place of total innocence to not so innocent by the end. Even though Brian was uh, recording with these elite musicians in Los Angeles, he had the confidence to control how every note on the album should sound. So if you listen to those outtakes from the Pet Sound Sessions, there are these beautiful moments where Brian's verbally dictating each syncopation to Hal Blaine, who is a really great drummer. And here's Brian saying to him, you know, this is what I'm hearing in my head. Could you play it? Hal, here's how I want to do it. Take it it's like this. Boom! Two, three, four, bottom. Okay? First beat on the last bar of the intro. We had Hal Blaine on the show last year, Jim, and he had played the drums on many previous Beach Boys recordings for a number of years, but he talked to us about how much Brian Wilson's sophistication in the recording studio had grown by the time they made Pet Sounds. Brian was deaf in one ear, and I mean that not as an insult. He had amazing hearing, but somehow there had been an accident and he lost his hearing as a youngster. And he had to hear whatever we were doing. Brian would call me and say, I want to do a session on Thursday at 2 o'clock. I'd say, okay, Brian, how many guys? Just the wrecking crew, that's all. And Brian would say, Hal, just give me a good backbeat. And Brian was working from his brain. He had chord charts 
of the changes where we would begin or stop. And Brian would say, I want to hear this from bar nine to the first ending or something like that. And we would play that and he'd say, well, this time, let me hear a little more bass right here. Now, these were three-hour union sessions. And he'd say, that's great. Thank you, gentlemen. And that was it. We were finished with the three-hour session in 10 minutes. Sometimes the three-hour session ran six hours. And it was all Brian, and it was Brian's ear. He was a genius. That's Wrecking Crew drummer Hal Blaine talking about Brian Wilson's work as a producer for Pet Sounds. His microphone placements were so precise, trying to capture each tone of these instruments. And the way he would stack the instruments was very unconventional. Mm -hmm. Vertical arranging rather than horizontal. He would stack the chords in really unique ways, you know, putting one instrument on top of another to create a third tone that sounded like neither of those two instruments. One of the effects of LSD is a phenomenon called synesthesia, where you believe that you can visualize music as colors. Wilson, again, a quote, I imagined music was like wading through a river until I was consumed by it. You know, he's beginning to really think outside the box, and these stacks of instruments, these feelings, that's where Pet Sounds really begins. It's a very sophisticated way of songwriting, and there'll be three, four, five key changes in these songs. This is very much drawing on the classical tradition, these sophisticated Tin Pan Alley songs that somebody like Irving Berlin might write. Here was a 23-year-old kid, the Surf Sun and Girls guy, suddenly writing these very sophisticated songs. Texturally, this mm. album really hangs together. It really works as one extended mood piece and the way uh, Wilson arranged these songs has a lot to do with it. A song like Caroline No, you know, the opening part of that song is Hal Blaine playing an empty upside down water bottle. You know, mm -hmm. this percussion effect that Brian heard in his head and he said, play that. There's two bars intro. You're going to start dit 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 and then again, that's top, the top. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Two bars intro. You know, muted bells on that song, shaker, wind chimes, harpsichord, ukulele, flute, saxophones. The flute and the bass are playing the same melody one octave apart. These beautiful arrangements creating this melancholy mood. And to me, a real tour de force is that song, You Still Believe in Me, which was originally titled In My Childhood. This was one of the beginning points for the album, Jim. He had this song, In My Childhood, with this bicycle bell in the background and a horn that kind of evoked his childhood, but he turned it into something else as he began working with his lyricist on this record. This whole idea of innocence, of childhood colliding with adulthood. How do you get that across in a song? He was able to communicate that in this song, this ascending scale, like an ascent to God, talking to God in these songs. This is the way a classical composition might come together. I know perfectly well I'm 
avant-garde piano that you're hearing at the start. Brian's pushing the keys while his lyricist, Tony Asher, is reaching inside the grand piano and plucking the strings with hair clips and bobby pins, creating this harpsichord-like effect. Push that, push the pedal down and play that thing again. Play that thing. But Brian didn't want a harpsichord, too brittle. He wanted something more ethereal. So he had said, you know, reach in there and pluck these strings. Uh, so Those were the kind of details he was going for. You're, you're, he's going into the realm of like Stockhausen and yeah. the, the avant experimentalists in classical music. Yeah, exactly. So you're combining these like classical scales with this avant-garde approach on the piano. Nothing had been heard like this in the framework of a two and three minute pop song. We'll wrap up our classic album dissection of the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds by looking at its remarkable lyrics and its ongoing legacy. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRigatis, and that's Hang On to Your Ego from a recording session for the Beach Boys' 1966 album, Pet Sounds. Now, Mike Love, Wilson's songwriting partner in the Beach Boys for a number of years, famously hated that title, and he forced Brian to change the lyrics to I Know There's an Answer for the album release. We talked about Brian Wilson's musical evolution on Pet Sounds, but lyrically, the album represented a major leap forward for the band. 
and it all resulted from working with this unconventional collaborator. Well, he's unconventional in the sense that this is a rock band at the height of its powers in 1966. Who does Brian Wilson turn to to collaborate with? A Madison Avenue guy, straight out of Mad Men. Yeah. Tony Asher is 26 years old at this point. He's a budding copywriter for an advertising agency called Carson Roberts. Nobody else in the agency really knows music. He's the guy who winds up writing jingles. He wrote one for Mattel Toys. You can tell it's Mattel. It's swell. Some of the deepest lyrics in rock history are written by a guy who writes for commercials, right? Wilson's later partner, Van Dyke Parks, lyricist who worked with him on Smile, you know, he's this mystic, he's this guru. No, not Tony Asher. Tony Asher is like meat and potatoes guy mm-hmm. sitting down working with Brian Wilson. They meet by happenstance at Western Recording Studio. Wilson's working on a session. Asher's finishing a jingle. But there are other connections there. This guy, Lauren Schwartz, who tripped with Wilson the first LSD trip, knows Tony Asher. So Brian is guileless. You know, he's very open to the world. Instantly says, come and listen to the music I'm making. They wind up sitting down and writing together. To be clear, Asher has said, point blank, the general tenor of the lyrics always was Brian's. The actual choice of words was usually mine, but I was just the interpreter. Mm -hmm. What is Wilson singing about? I think rock critic Nick Kent said it best. This is an album about a man, it's very much from a male perspective, who is coming to terms with himself and the world. Every song here, one way or another, even the instrumentals, I'd argue, are about a crisis of faith of love, of existentialism, or all of that. It's about confusion, it's about disorientation, it's about finding a reason to move on and to live. It's a deep album. It is of a piece. Again, it's coming from a place of pain. Wilson has problems, severe problems with his father. Wilson is confused about love. Wouldn't it be nice if we could be together, he's singing. He's thinking about his wife's sister, not his new bride. You know it seems the more we talk about it, it only makes it worse to live. There are a lot of things he's very confused about. I can't imagine what those conversations with Mm. Tony Asher. I always picture Tony Asher in my head wearing a tie, right? What else would a madman advertising guy wear? And Wilson's like, here's what I'm thinking, you know, and then Asher somehow puts it into words. I interviewed him once, and he said that Brian was so guileless when he would talk to me. I mean, he would say... I have feelings for the sister of my wife. And Tony would be like shocked, you know, like you can't say that. But he would figure out a way to write about it in a way that was 
you know, not smutty, because there was a certain amount of innocence coming out of Brian as well. Well, and we I both think, interviewed Brian as well. Yeah, and, and the whole thing about Brian is that innocence is constantly colliding with a loss of innocence, adulthood, the, you yeah. know, the specter of, of growing up. And I think you really hear it in the way these songs are coming to grips with that sort of reality. I once had a dream, so I packed up and split for the city. You know, now the Wilson brothers growing up in Hawthorne, it's not a particularly religious household, but the boys all have a certain amount of spiritualism in their philosophy. Dennis is the surfer, Brian is the seeker, Carl is sort of the George Harrison of the group, the most spiritual, the younger brother, the most truly religious person I know, his brothers would say. They believed in God, but they believed in a, in a sort of nebulous definition of God. God is love, God is you, God is me. Brian sits down and writes a song. His wife Marilyn's initially pretty freaked out about it because she's singing about God. Mm. Hard to imagine. But here it is, 1966. God has never been mentioned by name, much less in the title, of a major pop hit. Brian says, I've written this incredible song. It's going to be a hit. It's called God Only Knows. And it's asking this question, what would I do without you? Whether it's asking it of this higher power, whether it's asking it of a love in his life, whether it's asking it of himself. I mean, his personality is sort of fracturing at this point. The point is it's asking Mm -hmm. and it's wondering and it's pleading for an answer to set in. Fascinating to me that what may be the most personal song that Brian Wilson ever wrote, he gives to his brother Carl to sing. Carl has this beautiful tenor voice and it's so pure. Brian knows that he's going to get it, right? There are other versions of it with more voices. In the end, Brian gives it to his brother. His brother does a stellar vocal performance. You know, Greg, I saw the Beach Boys in the mid-90s, right? One of these horrible oldies Mm -hmm. shows, right? Carl was with the group pretty much to the end of his life. And it would be bad. You know, later day Beach Boys, I think a lot of people, you know, get hung up. I can't accept Pet Sounds as a masterpiece because, boy, did they become bad later when they did stuff like Kokomo, right, when it's Mike Love's band. But there was still a moment in every Beach Boys show where Carl would take the stage, the spotlight would be just his, and they'd do God Only Knows. And, man, it never was anything less than incredibly powerful. It's hard to listen to that song and not have tearful eyes. What? 
One of the greatest songs in rock history, period. Greg and I will fight you if you disagree. <laughs> God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. It is not a hit, Greg. In fact, the album is not a hit. It sells fewer than half a million records upon its release. Well, the thing is, I think the Capitol Records executives were clueless about this record. They go, what, what happened to the, you know, the Surf and Sun songs? What happened to the Hot Rods and Girls songs? They were befuddled by this record. They showed so much confidence in it, Jim, that weeks after Pet Sounds came out in May of 66, they issued a Best of the Beach Boys record to compete with their own product on the charts. The Best of the Beach Boys record actually outcharted Pet Sounds when it was released. You know, it went to number eight on the charts. Pet Sounds only went to number ten. A repackaged best of hit. Unbelievable. So the record really got shunted to the side in the U.S. market. Different story in the U.K. And I think one of the reasons that this record is held in such high regard almost from the start is because of what happened in the UK. For one thing, the smartest move that was made in terms of the commercial impact of this record was hiring Derek Taylor, who was the Beatles press officer, to sort of run the UK campaign for this record. Derek started this whole campaign built around the idea, quote, Brian Wilson is a genius. And it started the whole cult of Brian thing, really, Mm. because in many ways, this was regarded as a Brian Wilson solo record in the UK. In fact, there are a couple of songs on the record where it's basically only Brian Wilson. I mean, it's, you know, the other Beach Boys really weren't present. And we should point out that the Beach Boys largely were not present on this record, except for the vocals that they recorded later on, because they were touring while it was going on. They weren't even in the country when Brian was working with Tony Asher. That's one reason he didn't work with Mike Love, among many reasons. He wanted a fresh start, but, you know, the guys just weren't in any kind of proximity to help him work on this record. But in the U.K., this record went over big. Well, Um, there was this competition going on. Absolutely. uh, One thing we haven't mentioned is that Wilson had heard Rubber Soul and was very, very impressed. And Rubber Soul is the Beatles' first walk down that psychedelic path. They're getting to the point. There is this back, and they're listening to each other. Without a doubt. I think Wilson was heavily influenced. I mentioned Phil Spector's production being a big influence. The other big one was the Beatles' Rubber Soul record as kind of a lyrical signpost, like, okay, we're going in this direction now. This is where I've got to be. I've got to top this. He's as blind as he can be Just sees what he wants to see
the Beatles actually came to the listening party for the record in the UK and they went away mm-hmm okay we're gonna go make this record revolver now and uh, we, we've taken notes here both George Martin and Paul McCartney have been quoted numerous times as saying Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band would not have been made the way it was would not have been approached the way it was we wouldn't have spent nine months in the studio working on it had it not been for what we heard Brian Wilson doing with Pet Sounds she this day that song god only knows mccartney listed i think as as his favorite song of all yeah. time that he didn't write you know no, he, I mean, he waxes rhapsodic <laughs> about it and of course mccartney would go and uh, play chewing celery right. uh, on the sessions for smile so between pet sounds and good vibrations released as a single a few months after that this resonated with artists around the world you know somebody like frank zappa paying attention to this stuff and go wait a minute total control by this guy. It's clear that Brian Wilson is running everything there. I want to make my records that way. The Beatles hearing it, I want to make my records that way. Even Ray Davis, I had a conversation with him of the Kinks saying, man, the sound on that record was just incredible. Mm -hmm. Everybody took note of the fact that you could use the studio as an instrument. And Brian Wilson had a big part in that. I mean, there had been other artists that had complete artistic control before that. I'm thinking of like Buddy Holly, near the end of his life, had a lot of control over the way his records were sounding. Sinatra had a lot of control over the way his records were sounding. But the sonic impact of what Wilson was able to do had a huge influence on the rock world. I think, Craig, if we have to put a name on it, we're rock critics. That's one of the things we're expected to do. This genre of orchestral rock or orchestral pop, Mm -hmm. orc pop, the hipsters have abbreviated it, begins with pet sounds. And you see it thrive well before the 90s when it becomes a big thing. Nick Drake had said he wanted 1970s Brighter Later to sound like pet sounds. Please! Give me second grace Please Give me second face In the 90s, later, it explodes. There's the orchestral pop bands, the Elephant Six bands, out of Ruston, Louisiana. Olivia Tremor Control, Milk Hotel, Apples in Stereo, all hugely enamored of pet sounds. Before that, I remember sitting talking to Michael Stipe and Mike Mills of R.E.M. when this little record called Out of Time Mm -hmm. was coming out. You know, there's a lot of orchestration on that record, and they were very enamored at that point of Pet Sounds. We hear it live on. Kevin Shields has said that Loveless was very much inspired by Pet Sounds. You know, you have bands like the Fleet Foxes with the harmony-intensive thing. You have bands like Animal Collective. Yeah. Personally, I think there's more smile in what they're doing, more chaos. 
Somebody like Tom York, a guy who, who certainly can't harmonize like the Wilson brothers, has said what a huge impact Pet Sounds has on him. I think it's a very special album for many people. It's one that people hold very near and dear to their hearts. The influence is alive and well after half a century, now officially 50 years old, and Wilson's about to tour with it again. Al Jardine is going to be part of it. Something like 50 or 60 shows they're going to do this year. There's yet another Pet Sounds box set. I mean, geez, how many times do you own the album already, Greg? Yeah, about seven. Yeah, seven or eight, <laughs> each of us. I have a dozen books on my shelf. But it's an album that really deserves that kind of attention, and we think remains a classic. Let me hear letter A, second time through with the horns only, please. All the horns. Here we go. One, two, one, two, three, four. That concludes our classic album dissection of Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys as it turns 50 years old this month. But we want to hear from you. What does Pet Sounds mean to you? Where do you hear its influence on today's music? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to look back at 25 years of the Riot Girl movement. Sound Opinions was produced by Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, our intern Libby Gormley, and the last time we'll get to say this, Greg, Robin Lynn, who's been with us for ten and a half years. I don't know how. Unbelievable. I can barely put up with you. I don't know how she put up with both of us for ten and a half years. She's moving on to a little show. I haven't heard of it. Have you? Wait, wait, don't tell me. That's, that's a new one on me. Sound Opinions wouldn't be what it is today without Robin. We will miss her dearly. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, how's it going? Um, yeah, I just want to say, yeah, Brian Eno is great, you know, but his voice is not good, and he knows that. I mean, if you listen to Here Come the Warm Jets and that, it's like he's trying to be Bowie, but he knows he's not. By this time, I got to looking for a kind of substitute. I can't tell you what out, except that it rhymes with dissolute. But my baby's so lazy, she is almost unable. Nah, dude, Brian Eno's voice sucks. And that's, I mean, he's a great producer, good songwriter, but his voice is bad. He knows that. Later. Hi, this is James in Los Angeles. I just wanted to really compliment you guys on the Prince retrospective. Uh, I think you're right. You probably need like seven episodes to do it full justice, but you you really nailed it on comparing him to Duke Ellington, I think, because they both played and, and wrote for their band. But also, the other thing they share in common is that Prince sort of really explored blues in a blues form, kind of parallel to the way Ellington 
would sort of explode that blues form as, as often as possible and as much as possible. How many like the blues tonight? Again, you guys really covered a tremendous amount of ground on that one. Hats off. This is Jill from Minneapolis. I really enjoyed your show on Prince. I can tell you, as a city, we are still reeling from the loss of him. He was such a presence here and an active participant in our community. He was proud of Minneapolis, and we were proud of him, and we'll always be proud of him. One of my favorite songs by him is Uptown off of Dirty Mind. His lyrics about race and sexual orientation were ahead of their time and continue to be relevant, you know, some 30 years later. So thanks again for the wonderful tribute to Prince. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Hi, my name is Melissa, and I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. And I just listened to your Prince show, and it was wonderful. I love your program. Loved Prince, and my heart is so sad. But you guys left out a glaring omission for people who are influenced by Prince. Not many people talk about this, but, oh, my God, Trent Reznor. If we didn't have Darling Nikki, we would not have had Farther Down the Spiral or had, like, a hole or any of those. That beat is just, oh, man, it's so rocking. And, and everything they all do. Thanks. Bye. messages to share your opinions on sound opinions call 888-859-1800 we'll be back next week on sound opinions from wbez chicago and distributed by prx